Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. Well, good morning, Paseo del Rey. We are going to get into the gospel this morning as we examine John chapter 2, where Jesus cleanses the temple. Um, So, hope you're ready to get into God's word. Let us pray together before we jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we have the opportunity to read your word, to do this freely in this country. I pray that you would change us, Lord. You would speak to us through your word that you convict us of any sin in our own lives, allow us to repent of that, turn from it, become more like you. Thank you for loving us completely. Thank you for that gospel. Thank you for the good news that we are saved in Jesus Christ, that we were once separated from you, and now that we, that you have provided a way for us to be near you. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for this, and uh, pray you be with our morning together. Amen. Amen. All right, this morning we are going to be in John chapter 2. Before uh, we get in there, though, I want to ask you a question. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles, um, John chapter 2. But before we do that, let me ask you this question. What are you passionate about? What gets your emotions stirring? What gets your heart pumping? What are you excited about? You wake up thinking about things that drive you, motivate you. Uh, When I was thinking through this question for myself, I immediately thought back to when Janelle and I first started dating. One of my greatest passions is my wife. And when we first started dating, it was awfully, terribly awesome. I knew I was going to marry her right away. She didn't know that yet. Uh, So I just prayed and asked God to change her heart. And, you know, there it happened. So uh, when we first started dating, it was bad. I, text messaging just started coming out, so everybody was doing the whole text thing, and I'd only get like 160 characters in a single text, and so I'd write a text and then re- immediately rethink the text that I sent her. was like, oh gosh, did I sound like an idiot? Like, and then I sent another follow-on. It was terrible when we first started dating because I liked her so much. God also has blessed me with 2010 vision, and I could see uh, another male talking to her from a half mile away, and I'd be filled with jealousy in my heart and that passion that I had for her. Um, thankfully, everybody cleared out, cleared the space, and, you know, sealed the deal. Uh, but w- let me ask you that. What, what are you passionate about? It could be a spouse. You could be passionate about a lot of different things. Maybe you're passionate about politics, passionate about yard maintenance, right? Because my lawn is dead right now. So maybe, maybe you're passionate about that. There's so many different things that get us excited in life or maybe cause our blood to boil. Maybe for you, that's traffic. I dislike red lights too. Like there's a lot of different things in life that stirs up emotions in us. And I'm curious for you, what is that? Think about it. Because what we're about to uncover today is something that caused Jesus to have a passionate, emotional, zealous response when he saw it. To the point where Jesus turns and does some things that we don't normally think about or talk about that Jesus is capable of doing. 
So in John chapter 2, we're going to look at this. Let me first say, though, before we jump into the text, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, let me just say welcome. Glad you're here. We're glad you're at Paseo. Um, anything that I say, Pastor Mar- uh, Shelton, when he comes, he can fix. No, um, no, we're glad you're here. If you have any questions throughout the course of this sermon, any questions that's been on your mind that brought you to church today, please talk with us. Talk with a member. Talk with myself after church. We'd love to answer those questions for you and for the church. This morning, I have prayed that your hearts would be ready to be challenged and molded by the depiction of Jesus that we are going to see in John chapter 2. I pray that you would be zealous for the worship of God as we see in the example of our Savior. The big idea for this message is that zeal for the house of God will consume me. As it consumed Jesus, my prayer is that when you leave here today, it will consume you as well. So with that, let's jump into the text again in your Bibles. It'll be John chapter 2. We'll be in verses 13 through 25. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is going to be our text. And before we jump into verse 13, like any good Bible study, we need to know what happened right before this passage. So if you look in your Bibles right before it, it's the wedding at Cana. This is a lot of people's favorite passage. They love to dissect it. Why? Because Jesus makes about 160 gallons of wine. Everybody's like, huh, you know, that's an interesting debatable topic right there. Let's talk about that one. Really, what a lot of people miss in that entire discussion is what the wine was made in. It was these religious ritual cleansing cisterns, each holding anywhere from 20 to 60 gallons. And those cisterns were used for ritual cleansing so that people might be pure when they go and worship. Jesus, in doing this water into wine, not only at the wedding, but in those cisterns is in itself a symbolism act that something new and greater than the previous religious system is at hand. Something greater has come. Something new has come that will replace the old. The new covenant through his blood will pave a way that none had experienced yet before. And that's what we also find as a continuation in our passage in John chapter 2, verse 13 through 25. So let's go ahead and jump into this. I did not mention this in the first service. I want to mention it real quick right at the beginning. Some people, some skeptics of the Bible will say, 
one of the reasons why you can't trust the gospel accounts is because they differ on when the temple cleansing happened. John puts it at the beginning of his gospel, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it at the end of their gospel. Some people are like, well, that's not a big deal. Maybe John just put it at the beginning so that uh, he put it in order of emphasis, not in order of actual historical occurrence. It's okay. Some people, good biblical scholars, hold that view. I take a very simple view that he cleansed it twice. If you look at the two accounts, there's very different uh, aspects. And if you want to talk to me more about that afterwards, we can. But uh, I think John records it because his gospel was last written out of the four. He realized nobody else talked about the first cleansing, so he's just going to mention in his gospel. You can talk to me afterwards if you want to get into the weeds on that one. Anyway, John chapter 2, verse 13. Let's look at it together. So, first thing we're going to notice is it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. If you're here and you don't know what the Passover is, it's okay. We're going to talk about it for two minutes. The Passover is the first feast that was celebrated for Jews' exile out of Egypt, where God saved them from the hand of Pharaoh. It celebrates the last of the 10 plagues, where God sent the angel of death over Egypt so that any house that did not have the blood of the unblemished lamb over the doorpost, any house that did not have that blood on the doorpost, killed their firstborn. What's really interesting about this is you can actually go and look into Egyptian writings and it records there being a mass death of firstborns. Interesting. So all the Egyptians had this death of the firstborn. That was the last plague that allowed and changed Pharaoh's heart to send Israel out. So from then on, the Jews celebrated God passing over their house due to the blood of the lamb. Incredible symbolism that Jesus is coming into Passover and actually that Jesus was killed Passover week, crucified Passover week, as he is that blood that allows God to pass over our sins. And we're going to talk about that in a second. So everybody's coming from all over Jerusalem, right? Uh, everybody's coming from all over Israel. They're traveling from afar to Jerusalem. It's the center of attention for this Passover feast. Anywhere from a couple hundred thousand to upwards of two million people could have possibly been in Jerusalem at this time. It's packed. It's a party. And everybody wants to make their way to the temple. And what people should have done is they should have been raising a lamb that year, a spotless lamb, an unblemished lamb that they would bring to Jerusalem and sacrifice at the Passover feast. That's important for what we're going to see in a second. So with that, Jesus comes up into Jerusalem and Jesus enters the temple. And this is the first of the three points that we're going to see is that Jesus is consumed with zeal for something. And the first thing we want to look at is zeal for the pure worship of God. Look at what happens. Verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. What happened? Why does Jesus' blood boil? Why does all of a sudden Jesus turn into Indiana Jones and start whipping people? What's going on? So he sees these people who are providing a service, right? The service is intriguing. Some, some scholars want to say like they were ripping people off and there might have been a little bit of under the table dealing where they would buy someone's, they called blemished lamb and then put it back in their unblemished land section and sell it for double the price later. There might have been some of that going on. But most of the part, what we know from the text is they are just offering a service for convenience. It's a business commerce, yes, 
but it's for the sake of convenience. They have animals right there so you don't have to lug your animal halfway across Israel and sacrifice at the temple. You can just take your family, pack them up, bring them to the temple and buy your sacrifice and you're good to go. Now you think about it, like that seems, you know, kind of irreligious, but man, like I take a 50 mile or a, or a two hour road trip with my kids and I'm complaining because I'm in an air conditioned vehicle. We got snacks, water, everything you want. And they're still like crazy. Imagine hugging your eight child or 12 child family halfway across the desert to Jerusalem with a bunch of sheep in tow. Like it makes some sense of what they're trying to do. They're offering a, a service so that people can worship God. It doesn't seem that bad, does it? Money changers, what are they doing there? Ripping people off? Probably there's some ripping people off going on, but essentially they're just providing a service. People are coming from all over Israel at different places. They use different currencies. And so they're exchanging people's currencies so they can have the right currency to buy in the temple what they need to buy to offer sacrifice. Does that seem like that warrants a whip? Consider what is at stake. Jesus walks into the temple, the place where the people of God should be worshiping God. The place where people should have reverence and awe for their creator, their sustainer, their God. And what is he here? And the words of D.A. Carson, the bellowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep, instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce, there's a market. For the sake of convenience and maybe for the sake of a little bit of extra cash on the side, they turned the temple of God into a mall. What is Jesus' reaction for the pure worship of God? Look at what he does. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords. Like I said, Jesus wasn't Indiana Jones. He didn't just roll into the temple with a whip on his side, right? He comes in, sees what's before him, goes over into a corner and starts making a whip. He's stirring like this. You can just feel the passion in the text. Jesus is overwhelmed by what he sees. And then it goes on to say, he drove them out of the temple. That word drove out is the same word used in every instance for casting out demons in the New Testament. Ekbalo. He ekbaloed them out of the temple. He drove them out. Look at what, look at, with the sheep and the oxen. Jesus is there with a whip, whipping animals to get them to flee out of the temple area. Running to the bulls first happened in Jerusalem at the temple. Jesus creates a stampede. Now, I, now, some people go as far as to say, like, he's whipping people. I don't think so, because if he would have done that, the Romans would have came in and arrested him. But he's definitely causing a massive scene. Keep going with me. His passion is overwhelmed for the worship of God. Look what else he does. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. Comes over and finds where they're changing their currencies and just dumps it on the ground. You ever been to a kid's birthday party with a pinata? What happens when that pinata breaks? Chaos, right? Pure and utter chaos. The depravity of man is on scene as kids pile on for starburst and licorice or whatever else they can. They're just chucking things. Like, what do you think would have happened when he poured the money on the ground? 
People are diving, trying to scoop it up, right? You know, as the meantime, he's whipping his corn. This is a whole chaotic scene. Look at what happens next. He comes and overturns their tables. Now, Jesus probably didn't come up to him and be like, hey, excuse me. Uh, you might want to step back, take anything off the table you don't want broken right now because I'm going to flip this thing, right? So, okay, one, two. No, he didn't, he didn't do that. He probably just came over and just chucked their table. I've only seen a table get flipped twice in my life. Once was during a game of Risk. <laughs> and the other was Monopoly, all right? So <laughs> I can't imagine like a real-life serious anger flip. Maybe you've seen it before. Jesus is ticked. He has emotion flooding through his veins. This is not... The pale-faced, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, sad-looking Jesus you see on a lot of depictions. This is a man who has seen an offense towards the worship of God and is taking action. Because he recognizes what is at stake. And you say, Jesus, don't you say love your neighbor as yourself? Don't you say like... You're to be long-suffering, kind, compassionate. I don't know if whipping a dude's ox is that compassionate. It seems a little out of the ordinary. It's because of what is before him that requires such a radical response. The worship of God is at stake, and so Jesus takes his stand. Jesus is filled with zeal. It says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a verse quoted from Psalm 69.9, a Davidic Psalm where David is talking about how he has zeal for the house of the Lord, passion for the worship of God, and what the connection that's being drawn is a messianic fulfillment that Jesus is demonstrating himself as the Davidic king who has right over the temple, who is not only in the lineage and the line of the prophesied Messiah, but is also the rightful king over that temple. He is God. The disciples realized this later, not right then. And what is happening is a perfect de depiction for how we should treat the worship of God. So much is done out of convenience. Just like the Israelites, I think a lot of the times we want to just walk up to the temple, pay some money, grab a lamb, sacrifice, and walk out, did my religious duty. Thankfully, we're not just killing lambs right now, right? <laughs> Thankfully, Jesus paid the blood, and we don't have to do that anymore. But in, in a way, we like our religious convenience. I read my Bible. I've said my prayer. I did my duty. Jesus says, pure worship of God requires more than that. So I think there's, there's something here to be said for these people's service as, a, in, as trying to provide a convenience that is distorting the worship of God. Also, there might be some greed, a pro, a wanting to make profit in the temple off of uh, the worship of God, which we don't know anything about that, right? Churches never try to make profit. Um, but as well, I think the thing that is even more offensive at what Jesus says, Jesus sees when he enters the temple is his zeal for the inclusive worship of God. And the reason being is the, the place where all this takes 
the, the place where all this takes place, seems like a weird sentence, in the temple is extremely important. I'm going to show you a couple pictures here. This is the, what the temple complex would have looked like in that day. It's Herod's temple. Would have taken 46 years to be built at this time. It's not totally complete. If you look in the upper right-hand corner, that's a, a typical football field compared with how big the temple complex is. It's massive, right? Give you another picture here. A little different angle. This is a mock-up. Everything in the center there, that's, that's where the sacrifices would have taken place. There's the court of women. There's the court of uh, the Jews. Then to go inside the temple, only the, uh, the priests at that time could have done it. To go in the Holy of Holies, you can't go in there. You only do it once a year. There's, there's a lot of restrictions around the temple. One of the things that's a restriction is if you were not a Jew, if you had not been circumcised and brought into the Jewish culture, then you were in the court of Gentiles, which is on the outside of that temple. You can see a larger zoomed out picture there. And this would have been filled. This would have been packed. And the court of the Gentiles is actually where all of this is taking place. All the selling of animals, all the money changing, all the, you know, everything that's going on is in the court of the Gentiles. And why is that important? Israel was told by God in Exodus 19 that they are meant to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, so that everyone who looks at them could know the truth and know the truth of God, to be essentially the evangelists to the world. And they turned the place where the world could come and worship into a market. They turned the place where people could come and know about the one true God into a place where they were forced to buy something. A person walks in not knowing about how the sacrificial system works and they're immediately being pushed a lamb for the sake of commerce. Churches can be guilty of this as well. Pushing an agenda on those who haven't even been told what the gospel is haven't even been told what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So zeal for this, Jesus sees a distortion of worship that they're not inclusive, they are exclusive. They're not being a kingdom of priests ministering to the world, they're hunkered in, only looking after their own. What would this have been like? I remember I got the opportunity to travel abroad and I went to go see the pyramids, which were awesome. They are phenomenal. Uh, and we're coming up to them, and guys like arguing, like, hey, how, we, how do they even do this? I mean, there's like a two to five ton bricks at the bottom. How did they move that? It's incredible. Guys are like, oh, it's easy answer, aliens. I disagree. But anyway, so we're, we're doing the tour of the pyramids, going into the tomb, everything. It's really amazing. There's not a lot of people out there. And then we come around the corner to where like one of the most amazing structures is the Finkst. And you come around this corner and it's kind of like in a little valley and then you come up this road and you think upon cresting this road, you're going to see this Sphinx. What do you think you see? Market. Just everybody who's trying to sell you everything and anything you can imagine. Little kids are like running around trying to like slide things in people's hand and be like, oh, you bought it, $20. And like there's dudes on camels. There's one guy on a camel who actually followed us throughout the rest of our tour just trying to sell us stuff off his camel. Totally ruined the experience of the Sphinx. So we got out of there quickly. But essentially, I think that's a lot of what it would have been looking like here. 
Someone tries to come up, like, who is God coming to the Gentile court? What is it that you're worshiping here? And they're immediately trying to be sold stuff. Jesus sees a distortion of worship because the people of God are not concerned with proclaiming the truth of God to the nations. As a church, it's easy to say that we're concerned with the worship of God to the nations when we support missionaries who are gone. We try to raise money and raise awareness. But it's hard to sometimes go next door and talk to your neighbor. It's hard to sometimes go across the street and actually vocalize yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's convenient to give some side cash that you can part with, but it's inconvenient to actually put yourself out there in a personal way to try to declare the truth of God to someone who might not know it. D.A. Carson summarizes this little section by saying it was a prophetic invitation to worship God from a clean, from a clean heart, without clamor or distraction, without other influences. It was the opportunity to worship with purity. So, Jesus' zeal comes from a desire to see pure worship, to see inclusive, not exclusive worship. But as well, there's another thing taking place here, and it's in verses 18 through 20. He, he wants to cleanse not only the temple itself, but also the religious ritual system of that day. And so we see it here in verses 18 through 22. He says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed the scripture that the word and the word that Jesus had spoken. Naturally, the religious leaders, they wanted an explanation for what Jesus was doing. What gives him the right to come in here and tell them that their process is wrong? And Jesus does something incredibly crafty here. It's really cool. He's like, he, if you go back one side real quick, imagine him standing on either the left or the right side of the temple in the Gentile court with the temple behind him, this massive structure. He's like, destroy this temple and in three days I'll, I'll raise it up. Nobody in their right mind is going to be like, deal, you know, like I'm just going to knock this temple down. He does something really interesting there because his time had not yet come. And what he was actually referring to, what the text tells us, is not the temple structure itself, but was his body. Declaring something amazing. He is saying in that statement that the full presence of God dwells within me. And forever I will change where the presence of God dwells by my life. When I rise again, three days later, the veil in the temple is going to be torn. And we see that actually that was happening at his death. The veil is torn symbolizing that the presence of God is no longer in a temple, in a building where people have to travel and go to. No, the temple of God is in the believer of Jesus Christ. The temple of God, the presence of God is in the person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Forever, it has changed. The religious ritual system is done away with. 
Because the perfect son of God came and paid all of our imperfect debt. This is the gospel. I'm going to put up on the screen here what we watched in that little uh, spoken word at the beginning. The gospel is that God created us to be with him. Our sins separated us from him. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. But Jesus, paying the price for our sin, he died and he rose again so that everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. And life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. See, on the cross, this is what happened. Our sin, our sin is interesting. A lot of people think, well, can't I just do enough good to outweigh the bad? No, and this is the reason. Because when you sin, you sin not against another person, but against an eternal God. And an eternal God requires an eternal punishment. That's why he sent his son, fully God, fully man, to come and live a perfect life so that he might die paying the price of an eternal punishment because he himself is the eternal God. And on the cross, Jesus takes our sin upon himself, past, present, and future, everything, and pays that penalty. But it doesn't stop there. The great exchange happens where he takes upon himself our sin and he extends to us his perfect life, his righteousness, so that when God looks upon me, he no longer sees a sinner, he sees a saint. When he looks upon me, he doesn't see the sin that I've caused, the sin that I've done. He sees the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ, covering me. And that's what gives us the ability to be in the presence of God daily. I'll flip over and read for you 1 Corinthians 6. It says... Let me make sure I got it here. 619 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? For you have from God, for whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. You are holy. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot be separated from the presence of God. According to John 14, 23 through 25, it says that God will come, Jesus and the Father, and make their, his home within you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why at the very end of this, it says life with Jesus starts now. Not later. It's not something that we get to in the pearly gates when heaven comes. It starts now. Life with Jesus is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. We are one with him now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So how does that happen? It happens when you come before Jesus, you confess your sin, you believe that God raised him from the dead, and that you surrender to him as Lord. What Lord means is that he is king over your life. Doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. In studying for this passage, I've been so convicted in my own life of how I have allowed convenience and personal desires to cloud my worship of God in my life. 
But what it does mean is it's a total and surrender to God to continually pursue holiness as he has described it in his word. To follow Jesus, it says in, John, in uh, Luke 14, is to renounce all things, to consider everything as a loss compared to knowing him. To follow Jesus is a surrender of everything. So Jesus is zealous for the pure worship, the inclusive worship of God, and also this last one, the true worship of God. And I bring it up now because in verses 23 through 25, we see this, that it's not just about belief. A lot of Christians are stirring in their seat when I say that. What does that mean? It's not just about belief. Because you can believe certain things and still not be saved. Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, he's zealous also for the true worship of God. People came and they saw the Passover feast and they're like, man, this guy's got authority. He's crushing tables. He's whipping cows. This guy is someone I want to follow, right? They believed in him. They wanted to follow him. He was in Jerusalem for a time. He probably healed some people. I don't know, maybe, maybe did some more miracles. He probably didn't feed anybody because we would have heard about that, but he probably did some more miracles and they're like, we want to follow this guy. Well, they followed him like they would a fad diet or some CrossFit program. I don't know. They followed him for the sake of what they wanted to get from him, not for following him because it was Jesus. People come to God for various reasons. Sometimes people come to God so they can get something. The worship of God is never about it getting anything. It's becoming before him and saying, I'm an undeserved sinner set apart from you and destined to an eternity apart from you. By your grace, please save me. That I might be in your presence, that I might live with you, that I might serve you here in this life. It's not about me anymore. I want to surrender my life for you and give it to you. Use me. I'm a vessel. Paul says, I'm a slave. Use me for what you desire. It is no longer I who live but you who live through me. That's what it means to be surrendered. To follow Jesus costs everything, and yet it costs nothing. It's one of the greatest paradoxes in life. To follow him requires that you say he is Lord and you're ready to lay down your life. Yet nothing you can do can earn your way to heaven. Ephesians 2 says it's a gift by God's grace. He gives it to all those who are ready to surrender their lives to him. Jesus is zealous for pure, inclusive, and true worship of God the Father. I want to ask you and close in this realm. Christians, here this morning, how has convenience how has personal passions corrupted the worship of God in your life? If you are a genuine believer, you have the very presence of God dwelling within you. Your body is itself the temple of God. As you can see, Jesus has great zeal over the worship of God. How would Jesus see the worship taking place in the temple of your body now? 
Would he come in ready to flip some tables? Or would he come in being able to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Thankfully, Jesus is long-suffering, patient, kind, gracious. Because in my life, I know he's had to flip some tables. I pray that you would examine your own life. For the worship of God is at stake. I'm going to invite the band to come up as I ask you unbelievers in the room, people who are here who you might not believe and you wanted to come and come to church this morning and encounter God through his word, or maybe you have questions, maybe you have doubts, I don't know. I want to challenge you, consider these things. Consider what's at stake. You know, a lot of people will try to push, a lot of pastors try to push people to make decisions. I won't do that because Jesus never did that. One of the things he says in Luke 14 is to count the cost of what it means to follow him. He's like, don't, don't rush into this. To follow me requires everything. So I'd have you consider. Jesus is calling. It costs everything and yet it costs nothing. I'd have you consider. Consider the truth of Jesus. Ask some questions. Talk to some of us after the service because everything is at stake. And we pray for us as we continue in worship. God, I pray that you would be patient with us, Lord. We're still trying to figure a lot of things out, and I pray that you would, as your word says, continue to be long-suffering. Watch over us and guide us into your truth. Make us more like your son, Jesus. Let us know that it's not about the simple things that we want to do in life. God, it's about what you want in this life. Our life is but a breath. It's here a moment and gone. You have offered us a way to live according to you now, to be in your presence now. And I pray that we would be passionate, zealous about your worship, about proclaiming your truth to those around us, about helping the poor, helping the needy, serving those who cannot serve themselves. And God, for those here who are still finding out about your truth, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. Show them that you're real. Show them that you love them and that you're waiting to deposit the grace that is extended to us in Jesus into their account. As we sing this song, So I Will, I pray that you would let the words of this song be true on our lips and we would not rush into singing anything we do not believe. Let us worship you now with purity, inclusiveness, and truth. We love you, Lord God. Amen.